0: welcome to another edition of New York Update. I'm Jake Jacobs. Today we're going to interview Evelyn Farkas, congressional candidate in New York's 17th District, and Evelyn was a former Deputy Secretary of Defense in the Obama administration. Let's jump into the interview now. All right, we are here with Evelyn Farkas, candidate for Congress in the 17th District. This would be Nita Lowy's seat. We are going to jump right in to an interview on some education issues, if we can. How are you doing, Evelyn? Good,
1: good, Jake. Thank you so much for the opportunity.
0: No problem. So the three big issues that i like to cover, I'm a New York City school teacher and I'm a public education activist. And right. our real big fights are basically around charter schools and standardized testing. Now, we could, we're also going to talk about school funding, but as a member of Congress, and I know this is, you know, a pretty specific issue, but as a member of Congress, uh, what would your view be on charter schools and in light of the, the pitch battle now between privatization and doing something instead maybe to improve the public schools?
1: Yeah. I mean, look, I am the child of Hungarian refugees, right? They came to this country with nothing. They moved out to Westchester because my dad got a job as library director in Briarcliff, and they sent me and all my siblings to um, the schools in Chapala, the public schools in Chapala. We were not very well off, but we benefited because that public school system was very well funded, right? <laughs> because the the community was well-equipped to fund it using the property taxes. So I realized growing up that I was really lucky. <laughs> um, it was it was really almost chance that we ended up there. And I'm running for Congress largely because of the excellent public school education, you know, that I started my life with because I built upon that step-by-step to get to where I am today, um, uh, you know, all the way through actually even getting a doctorate. So, you know, speaking of education, I, I guess I couldn't stop, <laughs> but... but I feel that it's really important. I mean, that was the leveling the leveling field or the level ground that I received, in a sense, although I understand that public education is still uneven and unfair. But without a public education system that's well-funded, we, none of us can achieve or none of our children and grandchildren can achieve the American dream. And, again, as you may know, I'm running. Basically, my, my, my cat's clothing is running to protect the American dream. Mm-hmm. So, I believe very strongly in providing um, and focusing on providing adequate or more than adequate you know appropriate resources to fund public school across the board, but also to make sure that we we do something at the federal level to address the inequality that exists even in the public school system. So I think the charter school education system has come about because people have found, laws in the public school education system. And so the answer is to address the public school education system, because that's what provides the opportunity for America's children.
0: Right. And so on the federal level, for years, maybe 10, 15 years, there's been the federal charter schools program, CSP, which provides grants to new charter schools that are opening up and gives them seed money to do the research and hire and and then eventually open up their schools. It's been about 400 million a year on average and a report came out by NPE Network for Public Education last year, you know, they looked at a period of about 10 years. So I think from 2006 to about 2016, something like that. And they found that about a third of the money had gone to charter schools that either never opened or that quickly closed. And that, of course, is considered waste and fraud in the system. And that was brought up in hearings, you know, with Betsy DeVos, and they get very contentious when they're speaking to Betsy DeVos in those hearings. But as as a result, some of the presidential candidates, Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren, have proposed ending federal funding for that program and no other presidential candidate has expressed support for that policy. Although funny enough, Betsy DeVos and Donald Trump kind of changed the the funding to that program. They took it out and they put it instead into block grants that give the states instead the discretion to use that money either for charter schools or for other purposes as they see fit. So it seems as though that charter school program, it's not clear what the future of it would be. But on the federal level, would you vote as a member of Congress to end federal funding for charter schools?
1: I would look at it really closely and probably lean towards voting for it. Um, again, I'd have to look at the details of, of the legislation, but my inclination is to take that $400 million and put it into the public school system. And also, I mean, there are a whole host of things we need to do at the federal level to raise the standards, to raise the pay for teachers, which will cost money. And I'd rather put money into that than into the charter school system, which, as I said, I think this rose out of people being unhappy with the public school system, which should be where they go for their solution. So that at the federal level, as a member of Congress, I would really work on addressing first and foremost, the shortcomings of our public school system and not try to set up a parallel system, especially not using
0: federal funds. Right. Okay. So in principle, you would. And are you familiar with the NAACP moratorium? They, around 2016, after the Democratic Convention, the Platform Committee failed to come out with any language about the charter school controversy. The NAACP took it upon themselves and just a week or two later issued their national call for a moratorium on new charter schools until they can ascertain the impact on traditional public schools in other words yes like you're saying they feel that they're making them compete for the same resources and that they're hurting the neighborhood schools the traditional district schools and about a year later the NAACP concluded a task force and a research paper where they doubled down on their moratorium with a lot more input from their national affiliates and a lot more scholarly research on the issue. So are you familiar with the NAACP moratorium? And if so, would you support it?
1: Um, So yes, I am, and I do support it. Because basically what it does is it says that not only should... I mean, it's basically saying, okay, philosophically, again, the focus should be on public schools, but it's also very clearly pointing out the fact that oftentimes these charter schools that have been established don't have the same transparency and accountability as we know that public schools have, right, because they're made to have the transparency. They're funded by the federal government. So the problem with charter schools, it's one problem that they identified very clearly was that. But the other thing is that they're calling them out for some other things that they've done, you know, like expelling students, which then leaves students with no option, right? right. Um, and that was pretty horrible. And then of course the de facto segregation. So I think across the board, again, I think I I think the NAACP did a real service to, you know, all of America's kids by by calling for this for this moratorium and for these and for this oversight.
0: Right. And so you brought up the the issue of cherry picking, and I guess we don't have to get into it because your view is that, you know, public schools should take priority over charter schools anyway. But it's great that you're aware that one of the biggest knocks on charter schools and one of the ways that they kind of falsely compare themselves to public schools is by stacking the deck. They try to admit only the best test takers. Uh, even though there's a lottery, they they have these very stringent rules where parents have to waive their special education rights. They have to appear at multiple kind of like forums, like registration and dress rehearsal, and they have to agree to these very, very strict discipline policies. They have to sometimes agree to come in on Saturdays and volunteer. And it's a lot of things that impoverished families really can't commit to. So they kind of weed out the high-needs kids in the first place. And then if some get through, of course, they're suspended or they're counseled out. They're not really allowed to expel them, but they do by advising the parents, maybe this isn't the right place for you. And that was really spelled out in this great podcast that came out uh, this past summer called Startup Podcast. And it's centered on Success Academy. I think it was eight episodes and it was just incredible. So it's great to hear that you are aware of the cherry picking issue because that's how the charters try to portray themselves as somehow superior to public schools when they're really comparing apples to oranges.
1: Right, right. I mean, that. You can select your students ahead of time. Then, obviously, you're you're gaming the you're gaming the the system. So and and it, but it, it does create a huge problem. Then back at the schools, it's hard for teachers. It's hard overall because you need diversity in the classroom. Also, in terms of educational ability, right?
0: Right. Uh. Right. That's that's segregation by ability. They they call that right. So and
1: and the other thing, I think it's not really exactly related, but I also really worry about special needs children. And you know, again, this is uh, it's not directly related, but it's sort of a philosophy about how we take care of our children. And we should create a community inside the school room, inside the schoolhouse, and it's a community that takes care of all children. You know, again, my very. Well funded high school, you know, we had people there with special needs who had their special needs taken care of. Today, of course, there's some debate about <laughs> even in, even in the school districts that I went to. But nevertheless, you know, because of course it's expensive. But what I recall fondly about it was the, um, even the, the differences we had among ourselves in terms of ability and dealing with um, children who had things like maybe autism, right, yeah. who were there performing with us. So I remember that very clearly, and still I'm in touch with the classmates um, with, with that situation. So anyway, I, yeah. I, it's something that bothers me also as a friend of, of, a very close friend of parents who have children with special needs. You know, we need to make sure that we don't stigmatize them and require them to go somewhere separately they have to be part of the public school community and we need to make sure we have resources to take care of these children there in their community
0: not bust them somewhere else woven into the fabric it's also interesting that you say that because there have been discrimination lawsuits in new york Um, they were originally brought by letitia james when she was the new york city public advocate against the big charter chains. I think there was four different lawsuits that were brought by the charter chains for discriminating against special needs kids. There were kids that had disabilities and the charter schools found it inconvenient to serve those kids. And wouldn't you know, as soon as Donald Trump was elected, those lawsuits are just have just been in limbo ever since. And you know, now that Letitia James is the attorney general, we have reminded her of those, uh, when she was campaigning anyway, we reminded her of those lawsuits and and she did at the time promise to follow up on them, although, you know, I'm sure she has her hands full with many other <laughs> <laughs> other
1: Trump related
0: issues. Yeah. Right, exactly. So you can kind of understand. But the thing is, is that in New York state, charter schools were created in 1998 with a state law. And if you look at the very introduction of the law, it's called the 1998 Charter Law. It says that charter schools will have a special emphasis on students that are at risk of academic failure. And ever since the first charter school Uh. opened back then, they've had just the opposite. They have not had their fair share of uh, students with disabilities or English language learners or really any of the high-needs kids, whether it's homeless or whether it's traumatization. I mean, you name it, they avoid it. Right. So, yeah, I mean, so that's the reason why we are in this space, you know, trying to advocate for public education where there's really equity and there's oversight and there's accountability. And so I appreciate your answers. We yeah. we should yeah. move on. One, to... one
1: thing I want to add, Jake, yeah. is also also English language training because I have to add that because I didn't speak English before I went to kindergarten. And I learned it sitting around, I remember it very clearly, even though I was only four, sitting around a table with two professionals who were teaching me English. So that's also important. Anyway, I'll let you move on.
0: You know, Chappaqua is really, you know, recognized and has been for a long time as one of the best public school systems in the state. Uh, my wife teaches in Scarsdale, so it, it really is right. night and day when you, when you look at the opportunities that kids coming in to those schools have compared to, uh, you know, kids on the other side of the tracks. And so, yeah, let's jump into school funding. Now, it's a little different on the state level as it is on the federal level. On the federal level, Title I is the big thing where it's vastly underfunded right now. And I think Biden and Bernie and Warren, who, who's, who dropped out now, but I guess Biden and Bernie both have proposed tripling the Title I funding. Now, this is a funding stream that goes specifically to schools that are in poverty. And is it fair to assume that you would support those goals? Yes. Yes, more than fair. It's
1: it's absolutely true.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Right. And some of the other funding streams from the federal government are IDEA, which is the Individuals with Disabilities in Education Act, and And there again, it's never been funded to the original promise. I think they talk about you know the states getting percentages like they talk you know they say, "Oh wow, we got twenty five percent or we got thirty percent this year. you know they're they're really just looking for pennies on the dollar, but would you also support fully funding i d e a Yes, absolutely right, and so it's very easy to say that because we all want to help kids in poverty, and we all want to help kids with disabilities. But now there's probably a million different proposals on how to pay for it. And so how is your campaign thinking about that? So this would be like, you know, potential legislation to amend the Federal Education Act or the the existing education laws. How would you approach paying for those types of funding streams? Right.
1: Well, my proposal for my campaign starts with the call for a new... tax reform, basically. So we need to roll back the Trump tax scam so that we no longer have a cap on the deduction of our state and local taxes. But we need to institute probably two tax brackets at the high, high, highest income levels. And then we need to take the resources that we get from those tax brackets, those new tax brackets, on the very, very wealthy, and take the money and use it in part for for education at the elementary school level. So early early childhood education and education in general at the primary school level.
0: Okay. There is kind of a difference between adding new brackets in the traditional income tax versus the proposal that is new this year in politics where Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders have proposed a wealth tax, which is not the amount of money that... Um, you know, we have to go after the ultra, ultra wealthy because they're in much higher brackets and, you know, it wouldn't even change their lifestyle probably. But what about, uh, support for a wealth tax, especially as it pertains to funding education? So I would be open
1: to looking at, at proposals for a wealth tax. I just need, would need to look at it. I will make a couple other comments, um. Well, capital gains are taxed differently from wages, so that's that's I think kind of what you were alluding to, the laying or lying around. Um, and I do think we need to address that inequality in taxation. Right. That's important, but that, that's one part of it. And and I think it does matter. We've got the biggest income inequality in 30 years in our country, and that needs to be addressed. And the estate tax. I think we can look at the estate oh, yeah. tax maybe and do something more there because that is also something where, you know, my family, we've never had an intergenerational wealth transfer So The point is that people have an advantage if they've lived in this country for generations and done well that's built in, you know, so you're born into a circumstance that was not of your making. And I think having, having the tax code take that into consideration makes sense. So we should look at that. I mean, I think everything should be on the table right now to address dark wealth inequality in our society. You know, that that is the heart of what you're getting at. And there's nothing more foundational when it comes to, if I can pull it back to my defending the American dream, there's nothing more foundational when it comes to exercising your right to the American dream than a proper elementary primary education. Everybody deserves the right to a free public school education. That provides them with the foundation for having to being for being a productive member of our society. Whether they have special needs, whether they are brilliant, right. you know, Einstein scholars, <laughs> um, they everybody deserves the right to some fresh, you know, good start to a productive role in society. That
0: comes through elementary education. I agree. The great equalizer. And when we talk about the American dream, it's really that upward mobility or the chance at upward mobility. And they say statistically, we really aren't seeing it. You know, everybody is kind of staying in their lane. If you're born into money, you know, you have these trust funds that just generate money automatically. It's like, you know, free guaranteed income, but private and, and then kids, you know, in these tough situations, I mean, think about kids that, that have lost parents to, right. uh, you know, Become incarcerate. Orphan. Yeah, incarceration or deportation or many other reasons. They have just as much potential as, uh, as they should have, uh, you know, the opportunity to reach their potential. And public education used to be the vehicle for it until recently. And when we did see the white flight from the city to the suburbs, we did see, you know, a marked difference between the school quality. The quality of the schools in the city, you know, dropped in a lot of neighborhoods and there they've been ever since. You know, instead of fixing them, you know, we're talking about opening up charter schools to actually compete with them and then hurt them even worse. So, it really is foundational education. And so, I think the other real question I have for you, and this goes hand in glove with the with the charter school issue, but in 2001, legislation was passed. It was bipartisan legislation passed by George W. Bush and Ted Kennedy of all people, called No Child Left Behind. And right and that began the era of standardized testing and it was a federal mandate which was a new thing and ever since then every student in grades 3 through 8 have to take math and english exams every spring and Here in New York, it used to be six days of testing, if you can believe it. Now it's only four. Uh Yeah, because of the huge parent opt-out movement, Um, the New York state opt-out movement was the biggest in the nation. It topped out at about 21% of the state. Um, But on Long Island, it's around 50% on Nassau and Suffolk counties. As of last year, I think it was about 16% because, you know, every year there are parents that age out, you know, of 8th grade. And so they're replaced by by incoming 3rd grade parents who really, you know, may not be aware of the controversy. But what is your position on high-stakes standardized testing and the federal mandate that still to this day requires um, kid every kid in every public school to take those exams
1: yeah I mean I look I, I just think it's misguided I mean I'm guessing that they felt that they needed a way to gauge how we were doing across the board in terms of in order to allocate resources and probably to assess how the US was doing relative to other countries I don't know but I don't think it's very good for children to be um, Subjected to this kind of repeated testing, um, and you know, brains are developing constantly, and and I also think that tests are not always a good measure of learning. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I uh, the emphasis on testing I think is misguided, um, and it and it ends up, um, frankly, having the teachers focus on tests rather than teaching, and same with the children. So I I'm not I'm not a big fan of testing for testing's sake or to, to achieve something beyond teaching. I, I, you know, I think there ought to be ways to assess how the children are doing. Maybe you need to have some limited testing, but I would limit it as much as possible.
0: Okay, and so as a teacher, we test kids all the time. They're tests that we develop based on the curriculum that we teach. And so the state tests come in every spring, and it's kind of like a different kind of intrusion. If you're in Congress... Um, so there's, there's maybe two or three levels. Would you, uh, vote for a full repeal of the, of the federal mandate and that would leave it to states to decide what they want to do? Or would you reduce the current mandate, which is that, uh, kids have to be tested every year in two subjects? Some people have suggested instead of every year, they do it once every three years, which they call grade span testing or something else. So what would your kind of like, uh... Prescription be.
1: So I have to say, Jake, I I don't have a firm position on any of these, and my hesitation is because I'd have to look at the details and how it would affect communities. I mean, obviously, first and foremost, my allegiance is to our community. So how it impact children in Rockland and Westchester, mm-hmm. but I also know there are other parts of the country where. Maybe they need help. You know, maybe the teachers aren't being, aren't engaged as much, or the communities aren't engaged as much that the public school help the children. So maybe, there may be a reason that I'm, that I don't understand, you know, why, why it would work better for Mississippi. Um, so I'm trying to, so I wouldn't want to say outright how I would vote, but certainly I would want something. I would want it to make sense based on what I'm hearing from Teachers here in Rockland and teachers here in Westchester, uh-huh. and you know, and balance that with the greater good. But, but uh, honestly, I, I would take my cue based on what I hear from teachers here, and that I haven't had a chance to look closely at the reform proposals. But, uh, but obviously, something that eliminates the onerous burden that you all are facing now would be my first priority, or at least my my, my impulse. Right. Uh, but I'd have to look at the, the individual pieces of the legislation.
0: Right, of course. I mean I don't want
1: to get bamboozled by someone from the other side of the aisle who tries to tell me they're gonna help teachers here and then on the on the other side it's you know something nefarious. Right, so well that's that's, that's to... I
0: think that's kind of what happened to Ted Kennedy because the Democrats wanted to do this with the intention of determining which districts need help so that they can get help. The problem is, right from the beginning, it really just showed that the best test takers were in the affluent areas, and that, predictably, the low performance was all in the impoverished areas, I mean, we could really just figure that out with census data. But the irony is that the help never came from day one. Okay, you know, like only 20% proficiency in this district right here. And it's not like any assistance ever came. There was no more funding, no more resources, there was no special turnaround team or anything. And so, you know, that's been the frustration is that we've been stuck with the tests ever since and the help has never come. And that's where the last time this was what this was debated on the federal level was in 2015 when they updated the ESSA act Every Student Succeeds Act and they right. got they did get a bill you know Obama signed it and they did keep the federal testing mandate in because they were afraid of uh, losing control of so many different funding streams that ended up being connected to it because of Race to the Top. And I guess it got a little convoluted because there were so many strings attached, so many you know right. sticks and carrots attached in those years. And so in general, as a teacher, I would love to see the teachers have more of a say in, right. in how these funds are allocated. The problem is the teachers are gagged we're not allowed to weigh in on the testing. You know, we are not allowed to consult parents as to whether or not they're supposed to opt out. We are only supposed oh. we are only supposed to direct them to our administrators and uh, ah. in, in New York State, there was a bill last year that passed the Senate on the last day, but it didn't get a vote in the assembly that would have given administrators the flexibility to speak candidly. Uh, to parents about the testing, but that didn't get through. And so, you know, we're hoping maybe that'll go through. Again, that's a state thing, but that brings us to a connected issue, which is a parent's right to opt out of the testing. There is federal language in the ESSA law that does guarantee a parent's right to opt out, but different states enforce that differently. And currently there's a, there's a federal rule that says, 95% 95% of the students in the district have to take the test otherwise it could give the federal government the discretion to withhold title 1 funds and make them repurpose it to get parents to take the test do you have an uh, opinion do you have an opinion on the opt out movement where uh, parents try to use their civil disobedience to say no my kids not taking this test i mean
1: i think I think that parents should have the right to speak up for their children. Mm -hmm. Um, But I would say as a member of Congress, I need to be listening to the parents and the teachers and go to Congress to fix the law. So parents don't have to worry about opting out. I mean, it's one more thing for parents and teachers to worry about. Let's fix the law then.
0: Right. an opt-out in New York State is the only reason why there have been modifications, you know, the only reason that it went from six days to four, the only reason why why they disconnected the evaluations, you know, that uh, teacher evaluations were connected to the student test scores. So it's been the opt-out movement that have have gotten changes. And that's a big question because it really is a bipartisan thing. There's just as many Republican politicians and Republican voters that want to exercise the right to opt-out as Democratic. And so it really crosses the lines. Yeah,
1: I mean, I think it's just a Democratic thing, you know, America as a democracy, you know, using your civil rights to exercise Displeasure um, provides, you know, puts good pressure on the system. But ultimately, I think the the fix
0: has to be legislative. Right. Okay. So I appreciate you taking a deep dive into some education policy issues. I mean, the, those are really the big ones on the federal level. I know that, you know, this is an education podcast, but as it happens, your area of expertise obviously is foreign policy. I forget your exact title, but it was something really impressive, like the Deputy Secretary of Russia and Ukraine or something?
1: It's close. So Ready? Okay. Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense for Russia, Ukraine, Eurasia.
0: Oh, okay. So <laughs> so you worked with the Secretary of Defense then?
1: Yeah, so I worked for actually technically four Secretaries of Defense, but directly for Panetta. Tegel and
0: Carter. Right. Okay. I mean, so now I'm out of my area of expertise. And so I'm deferring to you. So maybe this is like the fun portion. <laughs> but I saw that in the WikiLeaks, it was revealed that it, it really showed who the Obama administration was considering. And it showed at that time that Vice President Biden or uh, Vice President-elect Biden, only weighed in on a couple of positions where he had a preference, and one of them was Secretary of Defense, and it said Richard Armitage. Now, I have no idea. I, I know that name. I think he was the guy involved in, in the Valerie Plame thing, but do you have any familiarity with Richard Armitage and why Biden would have wanted him?
1: Um. So I don't want to guess, about what Vice President Biden's intentions were. But Rich Armitage, I do know him, I know him personally. He's fantastic. He was deputy Secretary of State under Colin Powell in the Bush administration. Okay. But came out in favor of President Obama, if I'm correct publicly even, right. um, during the two thousand eight elections. Yeah. So he, so uh, my sense is, it probably that was the connection. Right. And Vice President Biden always was a man throughout his career who could work with anyone. You know, he could work across the aisle. So right. my guess was, and the first Secretary of Defense that President Obama selected was Bob Gates. He just kept him in, in, in the office. Right, it was he butchers extended guy. His, his He extended his appointment um from the Bush administration through to the first Obama term. So that it, it seems to me that it was in that vein that um, Marvichis was considered. And, of course, Secretary Hagel was also a Republican right. um, when he was appointed to be Secretary of Defense by President Obama.
0: Right. Now, even though it wasn't so many years ago, we're, we're looking back to a time where it really didn't matter so much, you know, Republican, Democrat, as these were like career guys that were really serious about their field of expertise. And so it's really, I guess it's really not that scandalous about uh, Biden. He was really just looking for the best guy for the position.
1: Yeah. And I think in a way also saying thank you, two things like best guy, Thank, thank, and Armitage had worked at senior levels in DOD, um, but also thanking Republicans who switched, you know, like across the aisle to su- publicly support our Democratic candidate, right? So that was the case also with Hagel. So
0: it's like, um, like an olive branch.
1: And there's a long tradition of, do- of doing that, especially in the national security field, of kind of having... Having one or two folks from the other side of the aisle working on your on your
0: team. Until Trump, of course. <laughs> so I really appreciate you taking the time. Once again, this is Evelyn Farkas, who is candidate for Congress here in the 17th District in Rockland County and Westchester County. We have a primary, which is coming up on June... June 23rd. 23rd. And if people want to get in touch with you and get more information about your campaign...
1: They should go to Evelyn, F O R N Y dot com. Evelyn for the initials, N-Y dot com.
0: Good URL. Okay, so Thanks. for New York Update, this is Jake Jacobs signing off thanks for listening today. You can catch our next episode at nyupdate.org. And feel free to look up all of our archives on Twitter or Facebook. We are on most good podcast providers such as Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, Anchor, and more. Thanks for listening.